what's up guys this is Jay Romashire today at show number 15 here at Startup Founders and today I have a great podcast we're going to be talking about a startup that is not with us anymore okay it sounds like someone died but in the startup world startups come up and down and in many cases one of the cool things is to sit down with the co-founders and talk about what happened and today I have James Jordan we're going to be talking about uh, the history and the path of Cocky2. James, the co-founder of Cocky2, that is a marketplace for commercial uh, kitchens. Pretty interesting, starting in Down Under here in Australia, and then obviously um, they try to expand, and with the expansion they try to make it in the US. And we're going to be talking about their path they took and how he went from uh, founding a company called Danny Burrito, pretty fun idea, to then later on Cocky2. In this podcast, James talks about the things that work for them, how they try to expand, and why eventually they, they, they close down. And I think these kind of interviews with someone as open and such a nice person like James, they're going to be pretty interesting because in many cases, we learn more from failures that we actually learn from success stories. And I don't think that Cookie 2 is actually a failure. I think actually follow a path and maybe the industry is not ready yet or we're not ready yet, but hopefully in a few years, something new will come. And I'm pretty sure that James is going to surprise us with a new startup eventually. So welcome to show number 15. And here it is, James Jordan, co-founder of Cookie 2. James, thank you so much for being on the show. I'm excited to, to be here early today. Um, and before we start, I ask all my guests to tell the audience who are you and what is to be or what is your, your startup? Sure. So, yeah, thanks for having me. Um, so my name is James. Um, I'm a serial founder. Um, most recently, my startup, Cookatoo, was um, a kitchen sharing marketplace for food businesses to launch and scale without the, the capital or the overheads of buying or leasing a commercial property. Okay, I'm, I mean, I see based on your profile, I was obviously spying before this, that you also had something called Danny Burrito before, right? So, I mean, you have been in the food industry, I mean, previously, how did you end up um, launching a Cookie 2? Yeah, definitely. So, um, Danny Burrito was before um, Cooker 2, um, and that was a, a classic example that you hear a lot of people say that, you know, if they knew what they knew now, they wouldn't have started. Um, <laughs> you know, it was just blind ignorance um, in me. I wanted to launch an on-demand food delivery um, app where we also ma made all the food ourselves and we also managed all the kitchens. Um, oh so <laughs> it's like it was Uber Eats plus um, McDonald's plus <laughs> like JLL property or something. It was a it was a very ambitious startup, but um, that was just because I'd worked in restaurants for um, a couple of years prior to that. You know, managing restaurants, and I just saw um, first of all a lot of people requesting food to be delivered. Um, and at that time, there was nothing really out there that was doing delivery. Menu log was around, but if you remember, it was it was a terrible service. You would you would order food, and then you'd get a text message that would say, um, "Your food will be arriving between forty minutes and an hour and a half from now." <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you would and you would just sit and wait quietly for the food to come, and and then when it arrived, it would inevitably be cold um, and it would be a, just a terrible experience as a consumer. So that was the, the problem I originally wanted to solve was delivering food quickly. 
um, and been able to track it as well. Because at that time, Uber was just getting started and I, I was thinking, why can't we track your food to be delivered? That seems pretty, pretty logical. Okay, so it seems to me that it's like a, like a huge endeavor, especially because you have to, I mean, the, the market is huge, but also the demands and the locations and transporting and cooking. So tell me a little bit about what happened when you, when you launched this, because I love when, when founders launch ideas that they go, yeah, we can do it. It's going to be awesome. And then after a few months, they go, oh, wait two seconds. So tell me about the first difficulties that you went like, oh, maybe I didn't think this properly. Yeah, so I guess I guess we got really lucky. Um, so we launched a trial um, in eastern suburbs of Sydney, and then what happened almost around exactly the same time was Deliveroo and Uber Eats launched in Sydney. Um, so that made us kind of just stop for a second and look at what was happening um, in the market. So I guess that was a really lucky. Um, point in time where we were able to see what was changing and review our business um, without, you know, without getting too deep into it. So to be honest, it was really lucky timing. And what we did is we saw Uber Eats and Deliveroo and we saw they were controlling the um, consumer side of things. So they were going to have the app and they were going to do the delivery. Um, And we thought initially we thought, okay, perfect. That means we don't have to worry about the, logistics of delivery we'll just focus on really good food that's going to be delivered using these um, third-party apps so that was our my initial thought um, but then as you start to look at um, food businesses and, and the, the challenges that come with scaling food businesses we decided to then focus on the kitchen space um, and that's how we arrived at Cooker 2. Okay, now correct me if I'm wrong, but obviously if you have a product that people can start ordering, I mean, food constantly, you can't really have a break, right? I mean, how do you pivot when you still getting orders coming in for, for food? So how long did Dali Burrito lasted and when did you start switching to, to the rental of, of the kitchen uh, space? Yeah, sure. So you're exactly right. Um, and as I said, we were very lucky that we weren't in full scale um, production when we switched. So um, what we at the end of the trial period, we we stopped, um, and then the intention was to roll it out across um, the whole of Sydney um, in the next months. And it was in that period that Uber Eats and Delivery launched. Um, and so we were able to say, okay, let's hold off the official launch, um, and then wait and see what happens with with these other companies. So it was in that break that then we were able to look at what our business was and luckily pivot before, um, before getting to the full scale. So very lucky. Okay. And so you're going to be, I mean, approaching the kitchen marketplace. How did you end up with that? Because I mean, the first time I, I was doing research about you guys, I was like, is this even, uh, I mean, there's even need for this. But then <laughs> when I, I actually spoke, it's pretty interesting. When I actually, when you book them, the, the interview, I spoke to someone that he was telling me that he wanted to offer a delivery service. I mean, I mean, just cook some food and the difficulties of the investment mm. on, on, on these, on this commercial equipment. So can you give to people that are not chefs, we're not working in the, in the food industry, how complex it is for people to, to produce food commercially? Yeah, sure. So I guess just initially like how we, how we came up with the cooker to kitchen sharing idea it it goes back again to my naivety 
in Danny Burrito. So I wanted to have a food delivery service that only delivered food between 5 and 9 p.m. because I knew from my experience in restaurants that that was the peak time. Um, and restaurants are open outside of those hours just to try and recover, to reduce their losses, if that makes sense. So like, you know, you're paying a lease 24 seven, so you have to try and recover your costs, even though you're only really making money between five and 9 p.m. So my, my idea was, why can't we just open from five to 9 p.m.? Um, and so that sent me down a path of looking at alternative kitchen options that would allow me to do five till nine. So we looked at um, like food trucks, we looked at a couple of different opportunities. Um, and then a friend of mine had a, had a cafe um, and they were closed at four o'clock. Like, uh, smart. I was like, this is perfect. Why, why don't you let us use your cafe? We'll use it from five till nine. You can um, you know, make some extra money for, to cover your rent um, and we'll have a place to cook uh, our food from. So the idea of Danny Brito was to have um, you know, hundreds of these kitchens utilizing um, downtime in other commercial spaces. So <laughs> again, another huge undertaking in, of Danny Burrito. Um, but we, we managed to sort of um, segment that off and that, that's what came um, Cooker 2 was that sharing of unutilized space. Um, but as you said as well, be, the reason that's so important is because if you want to set up a, a food business, um, you're really looking at um, $100,000, $150,000 of investment up front to take on a lease, to fit out the property, um, to do all these sort of things. Um, and that's really why food trucks became so popular. It's, it's, a, it's a way to avoid that upfront cost. Um, it's, it's a kind of a way to, I guess, bootstrap a food business is to, is to get a food truck. They still, mind you, cost 30, 40 grand. So it's not super cheap, but it's a lot less than, um, than renting a, a space. And the other thing is with commercial leases is you've got long-term commitments, like two to five years. So yeah, it's, it's super high risk for, for people that want to start food businesses. It's just crazy. Can, can you tell me a little bit about the, the failure rate in the food business? Uh, I mean, technically, I see, I, I live in like in a touristic area and we see all the time business popping up and they closing down or they go for mm. sale and people mm. buy them. So what is the, I mean, tell me about those, the risk factor in the, in, in the food business and I mean, based on your experience. Yeah, so there's, food has this kind of, um, this rose-coloured glasses kind of feeling about it. You know, a lot of people love the idea of running a cafe or you know, they're really passionate about starting a restaurant. Um, and to be honest, most of it is, is about um, business and operations. There's not a lot of uh, the creativity or exciting part that goes into running or managing a restaurant. If that all happens in the very early days when you're setting up the concept, um, then it just comes down to being a good um, business person and, and marketing and running that business really efficiently and reducing waste and labor and all those sort of things. So it's a really complex business to run. And I think a lot of people underestimate that. And I think, um, you know, I think when we, when we were looking at the stats, I think three in five um, new food businesses closed in the first six months. Um, and it's just, they just underestimate the costs um, and also the, the amount of time that it takes to build up um, a brand and build up a bit of a following 
with customers. Um, you know, people kind of think open the doors tomorrow and you have a queue out the door with people. Um, but it takes a long time to build that up. Um, and so, you know, I sort of look at you know, other industries where the initial barrier to entry was really high and that's been demolished. Um, and I think food is going to head that way. And that's what we were trying to achieve with Cooker too. Like if you look at, um, for example, like AWS, now you can just launch a website and, and host it with for nothing. Um, at the moment, it's still costing hundreds of thousands of dollars to launch a food business. Um, so I think that will change. That this, will is so, this is so interesting. Um, right now I'm browsing uh, Cookie Tool and obviously, because I'm not in the industry, I'm surprised how many kitchens are available, right? How many people are posing? So tell me, how did you guys start when you go, okay, let's try to make this a marketplace. What was the first step? And also I'm curious to understand what was the perception, I mean, what was the, I mean, the opinion of the guy that owns uh, a kitchen? I mean, how did you approach the guy and say, hey, trust people that you don't know. It's, it's a little bit like Airbnb, right? I mean, trust <laughs> strangers to cook in your kitchen and not to burn your place. So how did you go with that? <laughs> yeah, um, that was a really interesting thing as well is when we, when we actually started looking for kitchen space, um, we constantly were surprised by what we found. Um, you know, we would find high street locations where they would have a full commercial kitchen fitted out, just sitting empty at the back of the pub or underneath a hotel. We were like, whoa, like, and there's just been no way to monetize that asset before. So it's just sat there empty. So we were really surprised even ourselves at how much space there was available. Um, but in terms of building the marketplace, um, you know, you always have to solve one side first, um, or as I like to say, you steal the chicken. So the chicken or the egg problem, you just have to steal a chicken and then you can get the eggs. So what we did was we initially built up the supply side. So that's the side we wanted to focus on first. Um, there's a few ways that you can you can do that. There's some commercial kitchens that you can rent by the hour already. So initially we just listed all of them on our platform to make it look like there was already kitchens listed. Then when we went and spoke to restaurants, we could show them there was existing. So th those were the stolen chickens, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> so, you know, they were already rented by the hour. So as far as they were, they were concerned, we were just lead gen for them. Like any referrals that came to us, we would just send it straight to them. We weren't worried about, um, you know, making any money or anything off that. It was more about making the marketplace, um, kickstarting the marketplace. So, but then the hard part is, as you mentioned, going to these restaurants and, and pitching them on the idea of sharing your kitchen. Um, and what we found is it was very binary. People either loved it and they understood exactly what we were doing or they completely didn't and they were never going to do it. Um, and the, the difference was the people that were running the business and the people that were running um, like a food um, dream, if that makes sense. Um, people that were running their food business as a business, they know what their kitchen is costing them in their downtime. They have processes in place for all their chefs and staff. They have, you know, security and everything. So, for them, having um, a new chef come into the kitchen is, is no different than hiring a new staff member. You know, they've got all the structures in place so that it's fine. The issue was when it's um, 
owner operators and they're, you know, it's their baby um, and they're not going to give the keys to anyone. That was a lot more challenging. And, and obviously, if people that are listening to this, uh, to this interview, if you go to the website, you can actually see, I'm amazed, you can actually see that you can find technically anything that you need based on the equipment. So obviously, if you need to cook, let's say pizza, you can find a, a kitchen that specializes in, um, in, uh, in pizza ovens or all the materials. This is very interesting. I'm going to tell you something that is funny. Um, one of my one of my challenges, because I'm a Spanish speaker, the word mm -hmm. kitchen and chicken, I get them confused all the time. <laughs> Everyone that knows me takes the piece, okay? <laughs> so right now, this, this, you mentioned that you have to buy the chicken first, and I'm talking about kitchen. This has been the most challenging experience of my life. But anyway. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> expect the introduction of the show, like the only marketplace where you can rent chickens. Uh, okay, so, so you go and you steal the the kitchens obviously that we're going to put them there uh, and then how do you end up i mean finding the people that are looking for these because people that are looking for a rental kitchen i mean where do you find these people is this just based on word of mouth or they're constantly looking for this and even further is do they know that this exists hmm. yeah i think that was definitely one of the challenging parts um it's a uh trying to find people that need a kitchen is a it's a really fragmented market and um we we really struggled to find one particular place where they would go or one common thing that they did um you know other than google ads which which we we ended up getting quite good results from that and from organic search as well because i mean everyone just types into google like commercial kitchen for rent um and there was very little competition for that. So we were able to do quite well through that channel. Um, but apart from that, it was challenging to find any other acquisition channels that were, that were really valuable for us. And you also have something called the virtual kitchen. Can you explain yeah. me what a virtual, I mean, can you explain people, I mean, that listen to this, what a virtual kitchen is? Yeah, sure. So the concept there is, again, similar to AWS, where you would now just push a button and somehow magically um, you, can, you can launch a server. Um, what the concept there was, if you needed a kitchen, um, let's say you were um, Guzman and Gomez, for example, um, and you don't have delivery, you don't have a, a restaurant in, um, doesn't have a restaurant, let's say Newtown, um, and you want to expand your delivery radius to Newtown, so not, not walk-in retail, but delivery, you could, with a virtual kitchen, basically say, um, we're going to spin up a delivery location in Newtown, and then what we would do is we would have the inventory of the kitchen, we would provide the staff, um, and we can also connect you with suppliers as well, if needed be, and then you can then set up that kitchen and have it operating um you know two days later so that was the oh, wow. of the okay the whole the whole, the whole thing ready I, I i guess it's it's almost difficult to to, to beat this right because the 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 other option is so expensive that is it's like a no-brainer right <laughs> yeah exactly and i think the reason why we, we we looked at that is because with food delivery um you really do have the option to turn on and off demand for food which hasn't been possible before so when you have a physical retail store 
Um, you know, when you open the doors, people come in. When you close, they don't. Um, with like Uber Eats, you can say, um, you know, turn it on for a month in Newtown and let's see how it goes. Or you can test. Um, you oh, know, I didn't know that at all. That is yeah. interesting. Yeah. So if you're a big, um, a big company that's looking to scale, um, you know, like Guzman and Gomez, instead of having hundreds and hundreds of physical stores, you can, you can have those as well, but then you can also just start testing these new markets and expanding your offering and see, okay, you know what, actually Newtown is, is not very busy. Let's shut that down. Let's try Erskineville. And you like turn on a kitchen in Erskineville, see how it goes. And, and you get this kind of fluid testing of, of the, the industry, which has- It's almost like market research heaven, right? I mean, it, it makes it like a no brainer to be able to test different areas. Fascinating. Yeah, well, for food businesses, it's never been possible because it's always, you had to commit to that one location, that one concept. Um, the, other, the other thing is you can test multiple concepts as well because there's no physical store. You can have a Mexican restaurant, an Italian pizza joint and a burger shop all out of the same kitchen and no oh. one knows of course, <laughs> I, so you I can never... A/B test everything. <laughs> so you could even create different brands. I mean, automatically under one one kitchen uh, to see what's what's going to work. There's companies, some of the big brands already doing that in Sydney. I won't I won't say who. Okay, so obviously <laughs> you th it's, it's it's a little bit funny. It's like when when people uh, buy HP and Compact or they think they're making a choice <laughs> by the same company. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. I, I I love it, and, and obviously I mean, and, and when did you when you brought this idea to people, did the the food operators got it as uh, in the same way that I got it, going, oh crap, this is awesome, or did you have to educate people a little bit um, into the business side of of of, of the advantage? of what you guys offer? Yeah, it was definitely, you know, around the timing, I think we are, and it is still too early in the market for, for what we're doing, a virtual kitchen. Um, in terms of speaking to people, um, very few people get it, <laughs> honestly. Um, everyone is still very much looking at bricks and mortar restaurants. Mm -hmm. Um, oh, wow. one brand, you know, big signage out the front. Um, big I don't think really, yeah. And there's, even if they are looking at delivery, it's still, um, an additional revenue stream to their traditional business rather than thinking about delivery as an entirely new industry altogether. Um, I think it's happening a little bit more in the U S um, but particularly in Australia, um, you know, we had, we had good conversations with some of the big brands here that were like, okay, it sounds really interesting. Um, it's definitely something we'll think about, but it's not on their immediate radar. Wow. So then, then you guys decide to, to go to the US. Mm -hmm. So how does that conversation happen? How does someone goes, Hey, you know what? Let's, let's try this in the US. Well, we actually, um, we went on, so we went through an accelerated program um, with my co-founder and I, and we, we went to uh, a trip to San Francisco through that program. Um, so that was the, the Murray D Telstra accelerator. And we went to San Francisco for a couple of weeks. Um, and I was just completely blown out of the water by um, what was happening over there. Um, Why? I think, um, I think for myself and I think for a lot of others, we get lured into this sense of Australia being a large market because of the geographical size. Um, but it's actually such a tiny market. Um, so when I went to 
the US, what, what impressed me was the speed at which people um, operate, the, the size of the opportunity, um, and how willing people were to, to give you a go, I guess. So the way I would articulate it is that in Australia, no one believes you can do anything until you prove that you can. Whereas in the US, everyone believes you can do whatever you want until you show them that you can't. Wow, that's powerful. Okay, that hurts a little bit, but I love it. Okay. Yeah, it's very, it's very confronting. Um, and it made it really hard when I came back to Australia as well. I was like really full of confidence and I was like, you know, really, we were going to, to do a lot. Um, and the constant feedback is like, well, let's see, <laughs> you know, in Australia. Um, but the other thing is the speed um, and to, the speed at which they operate. And it's, again, it's hard to understand until you, you witness it. But I'll give you an example. So we very fortunate to get an introduction to um, CFO of Yahoo. Um, and so we set up a meeting at his office in, in Menlo Park. We went down there. It's actually a really funny story. We were running really late. And so we'd been going since like 8 a.m. in the morning. The meeting was like 3 o'clock in the afternoon. We hadn't eaten all day. We were running like very close to being late. So I think it was like two or three minutes until the meeting was about to start. There was a McDonald's across the road. We ran in, grabbed uh, two, I can't remember what they were, two, um, two meals, ate them at, ate it in the elevator, <laughs> left a bag of the McDonald's in the Menlo Park elevator, exited the door and swallowing the last bite of the burger and then uh, sat down for a meeting with the, the CFO. It was pretty, it was pretty funny. I love um, it coming, coming from the food industry, right? I mean, like we could choose anything, <laughs> anything of the of the of the good cuisine here, and we go McDonald's. That's yeah, classic. exactly. It was so so funny. Um, but then, so we had a, just a really interesting meeting with him. Um, you know, he is, was sitting across from us, not taking any notes. There was no assistant there or anything. It was just us. Um, he was like, "Oh, you know what? I should introduce you to this guy. They're doing something really interesting." And we were like, "Yeah, that'd be great." He's like, oh, I should, you know, I should also show you this company that I've invested in. Like, they're really doing something really cool. Like, over the period of you know, 45 minutes, mentioned two or three things. Then um, we we shook hands and we headed headed off. And as we were waiting for the lift to head back to the city, um, three emails came through. Like, bang, introduction to this person. Wow. Bang, like meeting set up with them. Bang, like like he just remembered all this stuff and he would just actioned it straight away. You know, like. I was like, whoa, um, you know, there's kind of this thing in Australia where I'm not going to move too fast because I'm just in case. Yes. Yeah. Just in or, case you fail. Yeah. It's like, you know, I'll just, you know, whereas it's just like, nah, just do it, you know, tick the, tick the box and task done and then move on. It's just that, that speed is just insane. So yeah, it was actually okay, So really tell me a bit about how these startup uh, accelerators work for people that are listening to this. I mean, so you have, you go to three weeks, clearly part of the requirements is you enjoy McDonald's in elevators, <laughs> but what else, I mean, what else did you, did you learn during this experience in, in San Francisco? Um, well, so I guess, um, with the accelerator, um, we got connected with a lot of really interesting people. Um, and that was probably the next big thing. So we were able to to chat with people and see what they were doing over in the US. And that made me realize that they're not any different to the people that are here. Um, they just happen to be in San Francisco. Um, there was no you know, special source. There was nothing in the water in particular there. It was just smart people that were doing really interesting things. 
um, and it was no different to the people that I would meet and, and talk with in Australia. Um, and so that's what made us realize, well, well, there's no reason why we can't launch in the US. And especially because um, I guess the, the cooking industry is, is not very different from the US. It's, it's not like you have to do a massive, I mean, cultural learning process to understand how a burrito truck works in the US versus in Melbourne, right? Is the same process. Or did you find there were challenges between the US and Australia? No, that's, that's the other thing. It's, it's very similar. So, um, you know, English speaking country with very similar, um, you know, multicultural food. Um, so it's very similar. What about the, the, the competition? Clearly the US is bigger, bigger market, but then, I mean, do you face competition? What was the, um, what the challenge you were facing in the US? Yeah, well, what, what's interesting is that US, in terms of starting and growing food businesses, um, that's obviously been a challenge for a long time. Um, and the US had came up with a slightly different solution to ours. So our solution was to, to share commercial space. Um, whereas there's an entirely new industry that we didn't know, that doesn't exist in Australia, and we hadn't seen before, called kitchen incubators. And what that is, is basically someone will rent a large um, commercial space. It will usually have a retail um, attachment as well. And then people will basically apply to, to become a part of this incubator. Then they will spend three months, 12 months in this space, um, going through the initial stages of developing a product, testing it, um, figuring out all the costs. They usually have um, you know, business advisors, there to help you with that as well. You can look at how you can sell it either retail or online. And that, that is bridging the gap between the idea stage and the full scale um, production of a food business. So that was really our, our indirect competition. So anyone that had a, a food idea could apply to one of these accelerators and um, incubators and, and bridge that gap before going out and launching a full scale business. Um, so that was really interesting. So almost like testing, it reminds me a little bit, I worked for Unilever like like a thousand years ago. And uh, <laughs> I remember that Unilever had these uh, kitchens in the US where technically every single product gets tested and over tested and cooked in a thousand ways. So this was mainly for, for analysis and, and, and preparation before launching, but they were not renting it for commercial purpose, right? Um, no, they they could also do it for commercial <clears throat> purposes. So you could test and get started, but then as you were slowly scaling up, um, it's, it's less for on-demand delivery, and that's why we still thought there was a market for us, but it was more for, um, you know, um, FMCG stuff, so online retail um, where you could, if, let's say you were doing, um, you know, vegan chips, you could start manufacturing, you know, 100 units in this incubator and then next week you do 200 and you could slowly um, scale up. As the orders started to come through for your product, you could work out, okay, how do we, you know, increase this to hundreds of thousands of units and it's just a way to scale the business. Um, they got it. You were stealing chickens in Australia. How did you start stealing chickens in the US by being Aussies? I mean, I guess it's completely different. I mean, at least here you are in Sydney stealing 
keychains or chickens from from Sydney, but if you can start stealing, I mean, keychains from Texas, how did that you know went with people there? Yeah, so we did exactly the same. So um, Caroline, my co-founder, um, was the one who was in charge of the leading the charge. The stealing. The stealing. Yeah, she was undercover stealing the chickens. Um, and uh, in the same in, in Australia, she was she was the one who was um, you know out there hustling a lot of the time. Um, and what we we did very similar to what we did in Australia. So first of all, we only focused on um, San Francisco um, and the Bay Area initially. So we, we we reduced our our size, so smaller area in which to steal the chickens, and then we went around and um, listed any existing kitchens that you could rent by the hour. So um, in the area, there was about four or five. Um, so we listed all those straight away. Um, and then Caroline was just going around, same thing as before, and just getting introductions to people that were that got the concept and understood what we were doing um, and was, was signing them up. Wow, but obviously, um... Did you find it was challenging the whole approach of like, um, what are you guys doing here, your, your Aussies? I mean, how is this happening? Or people, because they were on the Bay and they're San Francisco, I mean, they were completely open to, hey, whatever. Yeah, it's, it's exactly, um, you know, it's, there's almost no Americans in the Bay Area. <laughs> oh, there you go, okay. It's, it's um, yeah, you know, we would, um, you know, you'd be in a lift and you'd ask the lift driver, you know, oh, where are you from? And they would say, oh, I'm from San Francisco. And, um, you know, then they would say like, they're the only one of the only ones left <laughs> because anyone who's from there, it's unless you're in tech, it's obviously ridiculously expensive. Um, and it's, yeah, it's a lot of challenges. So a lot of people are from either other cities in the U S or from other countries around the world. So it wasn't a challenge. Yeah. I'm pretty sure half of my Latino, <laughs> Latino, I mean, friends are, are invading the U S Okay, interesting. Okay, so you, you post you posted also there was um when I when I found information about uh, you guys at the same time there was a a startup in the U.S. that was shutting down at the same time, right? Um, I think that was called a Pilot Works. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Uh, in New York. In New York. Okay. Yeah. Did that? Did that? I mean, at, at some stage concern the fact that okay i mean why is someone closing i mean when they're in the u.s and here we are trying to come i mean trying to come from australia or or that wasn't related no so it actually um it gave us more confidence because we we went and visited pilotworks um and the, what pilotworks was was it was the old um the old mentality of running a business so pilotworks they'd um rented or purchased a very large commercial facility um, and then fitted it out with multiple smaller kitchens um, and then people would lease the space off Pilotworks. So it was kind of like a co-working space for food. Um, and that is just the opposite of what we were doing. So um, our concern about New York initially was that there was already the solution, which was Pilotworks. Um, as soon as Pilotworks shut down, it proved that there was, um, you know, that business model wasn't going to work and that if we could find, you know, hundreds of other smaller underutilized spaces, then we could essentially take all those customers from Pilotworks and move them into other kitchens because they did have um, hundreds of hundreds of customers. It's just that the overheads of running a commercial property of that size um, 
were, were too large. So the demand was there, just the business model was wrong. And I'm just reading the information about Pilot Works. I mean, it's funny that you say $8 US because they consider themselves the $8 US for food. And they shut down, but they also raised 50 million, uh, obviously, yeah. because I guess building these, um, these kitchens is, 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 not, is not very cheap at all. And I guess all the money went into building this, right? Yeah, well, I, I, don't, I don't buy into that analogy. It's like saying, um, you know, where Amazon, if you want to set up a server, Amazon will come to your office um, and will install <laughs> one for you. It's like, no, the whole point is that, you know, it's, it's remote and you can just plug into it. So saying that we have a kitchen here that's like AWS um, doesn't make sense. Having, you know, millions of kitchens all around the world, which you can turn on and off and spin up at the push of a button is, is AWS. So I think they, they got a little bit ahead of themselves. Do you find that with the U.S. after your trip to uh, to San Francisco that their approach towards failure is a bit way more chilled? Um, I was I was actually doing I mean, some podcasts and we're talking about this about the fact that in the U.S. it's almost like uh, fuck it, just go for it and give it a go. Versus in Australia, there's this massive pressure, and you were telling me that people really didn't believe until you do it. Where in the U.S., uh, people believe you until you failed. So was it easier to just go to the U.S. and have that freedom of, hey, people are not even, I mean, doubting us so much here? Let, let, let's give this a go. Yeah, it's so, so liberating. Um, you know, there's, it, it really is fail fast and um, it doesn't matter. You know, everyone's failed. Um, failure's just a, a next step to something successful. Um, you know, there's that tall poppy syndrome in, in Australia, um, where if you if you stick your neck out too much, then people are going to try and cut you down. And 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 you know, there's a lot of it's obviously um, you know it's it's changing. But we felt really liberated when we went there that we could go as hard as we want, as fast as we want, and fail um, as big as we wanted, and we wouldn't uh, it wouldn't we wouldn't have any negative backlash to it. Um, yeah, it's really interesting. Now, I was thinking from, a, from an investor point of view, and my question is, is it challenging the fact that you are tackling something that is so unique, right? Because this is, you need to really understand the, the food industry, the US food industry, and how all this works. And even you explain how delivery works in, in Australia, it blew my mind because I, I didn't even understand that you can actually have two restaurants for Uber Eats under the same uh, kitchen. So how challenging is to, to talk to people that are into this industry that potentially can, can take this further and help you with investment? Um, yeah, it, it is really challenging um, because it's, it's quite niche. Um, you know, it's, it's something that a lot of investors don't get straight away. Um, and a lot of investors, you know, they don't use Uber Eats um, you know, a lot of them aren't, you know, sort of <laughs> buying $10 burritos from, from down the road. Um, you know, so they don't feel the pain themselves. They don't see it. Um, it's also a, a generational thing as well. Um, like if you speak to anyone, um, you know, who's, who's younger, you know, they ordering Uber Eats three times a week, um, 
whereas you speak to other people and they've never used an on-demand food delivery service. So there's definitely a generational thing. Um, and it's a completely new shift in the industry. As I said before, it's still very early days. So um, it's, it's definitely challenging. If you were going to launch, um, I know that right now, technically you are not actively um, working with, um, in this project, in this startup, but I'm, I'm curious if you were going to launch a new marketplace. I mean, if you were going to launch another, another startup, would you actually focus, would you do marketplace again? What are the challenges that you see uh, when entrepreneurs or startups come with the idea of like, hey, let's do, let's do a, a new marketplace? Because we see that all the time happening on, on forums, people that are super excited and they focus more on the software. Usually the question is the software of the marketplace. What are the challenges of launching a marketplace? <laughs> Um, I would, I would launch a massively scale, scalable SaaS product. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Please tell me. Okay. Go, go on. Keep going. No, just because, you know, marketplaces are so, so hard. Um, if you can sell a, a monthly subscription SaaS product, um, yeah. that would be awesome. Um, you know, recurring revenue, no marginal costs. Uh, you know, I, I knew that SaaS was a really big thing and it has been for a long time, but I didn't truly understand it until I built a marketplace. Um, connecting things in the real world is so difficult, so challenging um, that it has to be really compelling for it to be successful. And they take a long time because you're physically connecting things. It takes a long time to build up that network and build up, that marketplace. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if I would start another market. I guess one of the challenges is that when you have one of the, the kitchens, for example, I can post my, my kitchen here, but I may forget that I posted, right? Or I may go for a holiday. So, I mean, that thing that you mentioned about connecting, I mean, the two worlds, obviously that is resources. I mean, that depends on your resources, right? And that, that could be, I mean, exhausting in any kind of marketplace, right? Yeah, exactly. So that's, that's kind of the, the churn issue. Um, you know, you need to, when you onboard a kitchen, you need to get them a booking um, quickly so they realize the value of the platform um, and they don't forget about it. As you said, if, if they sit there for three months and then you come back to them and say, oh, great, we've got a booking, then they, you have to go through and sell them again because they've forgotten who you are they've forgotten what's happening so um yeah it's it's really challenging to match both sides with the market how do you end up finding um uh, caroline your, your co-founder how does someone goes and find a co-founder in such a weird industry <laughs> um i got probably the most lucky of uh, of any co-founder um so i was running Cookatoo by myself for, for about six months. Um, and then it got to the point where I definitely needed someone to, to join the team. Um, I was just really honest about what my skills were um, and what I thought we needed to, to take the company forward. Um, and that was, um, I felt we needed someone that was really sales focused, really people focused um, and able just to, to be out there and, and hustling with, with um, our kitchens and with our foodies. Um, 
and I would just do the manage the operations and um, and all the the back end sort of stuff. So um, I believe that we I put a um, an ad on Silicon Beach, um, and I think it was Caroline's husband Jacques who actually saw the ad and sent it to Caroline, who was working on her own startup at the time, which was funny. It was a mailbox um, subscription for kids. So shut up. Okay, perfect. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. So um, if you are a stay at home parent and you're making lunch for your kid, um, you could make five or six extra lunches, take them to school and then other kids could have um, lunch as well. And that was the that was the concept to help um, kids to eat healthy lunches and to to help busy parents. Um, but the challenge was is that you couldn't sell food to kids unless it was cooked in a commercial kitchen. <laughs> so when she found out about what we were doing with you know helping food, <laughs> you went, I can rent a kitchen for you. <laughs> exactly, she was like, "This is awesome." Um, so she totally got the problem. She was really deep in the industry. Um, and so we just did a one month trial. Um, and I think on the first, we had two coffee meetings. Um, and I really liked, I really liked her. And then first day I was like, cool, let's go out and chat to some restaurants and and try and sign up some kitchens. And I'm pretty sure on the first day she signed up more kitchens than I did now sign up in the, in the previous three months. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) I love those moments where, where life gives you a lesson, but it's like a, like a huge lesson, like it hits in the face. Like, Oh, look at this. I suck at sales compared to this person. (laughs) (laughs) You start wondering why did I wait for so long? Okay. Fascinating. Now, last question is, I mean, one of the last questions is what stops um, you from, I mean, from technically do these, uh, I mean, if, if I can go and steal, okay, the chickens slash kitchens, um, what, what's the difficulty of, of not doing this tomorrow in Canada? I mean, do, do, you, do you still need a time to, uh, to understand the market, to understand how New York works, to understand how London works? What are the things that you guys need to consider every time that you go to go to a new location? Yeah, I think, um, I think that's some of the challenges. Um, I don't think we were able to figure out um, in time what what exactly the business model looks like and what exactly the growth model looks like. Um, I think there's obviously a huge um, demand there for it and there's an opportunity, um, but I'm not sure exactly um, how to solve it. So I think with, with Cooker 2, we were trying um, you know, lots of different things, trying to find that business model or product market fit um, but but in the end, we we weren't able to to find it. Awesome, James. I'm so excited that you are here. I love the 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 whole the whole hustle from I mean from trying to compete against Uber Eats to them partnering. I mean, I taking advantage of them and then the whole the whole idea of launch, launching uh, Cocky Two. Before I let you go, um, tell me, I mean, what are your plans for the future? Um, um, what are your, your challenges as an entrepreneur? What do you want to see yourself launching or building potentially in the next, I mean, five, 10 years, 20 years? Hopefully it's not to do with, with chickens or was I highly confused? <laughs> I'll, I'll stop the chicken talk. Um, yeah, so we, we, Caroline and I have made the decision to, to stop Cooker 2. So um, we, we, we shut down the Australian um, operation. Um, we're in the process of shutting down the US one as well. Um, 
we, as I said, we, we weren't able to get to that product market fit fast enough. So that was a really challenging decision for, for both of us. Um, but now that the decision has been made, um, we're, we're both really excited about what's next. And I think, um, as you mentioned before about the failure, um, I am now more confident um, about my future endeavors as an entrepreneur than I was before, um, not less, which is awesome. So now my, my focus now is to go back into learning mode. Um, uh, I've joined another team very early stage um, and I'm focusing just on, on the growth of, of that team. And so, yeah, I'm going to spend the next um, year or two really focusing on honing my skills and learning new skills um, before, before jumping in. Um, I, I think that's so important. It's so important that we don't talk about the whole idea of, of, of resting, at, at least mentally, because mm-hmm. the whole idea of launching and building and hustling is a bit exhausting. And sometimes we were talking before the interview, it's actually kind of nice to go, hey, you know what? I'm just going to work for a while. Well, well, I come up with the next idea. Um, so, so yeah, I get the whole concept of, of, of going back to learning. It's so important. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think um, it's really, it is really hard and it's really exhausting. Um, you know, there's so many little things that, um, you know, you sacrifice um, and big things as well when you're building a company. So yeah, to go back to this stage of being learning, being curious, opening up my, my opportunities um, and yeah, letting my brain kind of <laughs> rest and recover. Um, and then um, I'm definitely going to just keep an eye out for what I'm going to launch next. Fantastic, mate. Absolutely love it. James, thank you so much. If you were going to give one advice before, um, before we leave to someone brand new um, looking at launching their own startup, um, and they're considering, let's say, marketplace, SaaS, or going to US, what would be your golden advice to someone asking you, hey, James, I want to become a startup founder? Yeah, um, I guess the same advice that was given to me when I was managing restaurants and not sure what I wanted to do. Um, my mentor said, just start. Just start. Um, like I said before, it was... It was my naivety um, and my bullishness in just launching the first company that allowed, like once you get the ball in motion, then you can start to see the moves that are coming 10, 10 moves down the road. You know, like if you're playing a game from the sidelines, it's difficult to know what the next move is. But once you're in the game, you can, you can see what's happening. And not guaranteed, but it's highly likely that the first one or two things are going to fail. So it's more important that you just get started um, and start learning and failing, um, and then you'll you'll find something along the way. And at least if you fail, at least you you have a meeting with with Yahoo, having McDonald's, and a trip <laughs> to San Francisco. That absolutely rocks. Yeah, thank you so much for being here, man. That was a ball, and yeah, and I can't wait for uh, to hear more about what you're going to be working in the future. So yeah, let's stay in contact. Awesome. Thanks, Kevin. I appreciate it. Okay. Thanks, mate. Have a good day. Cheers. Cheers. Well, there you go, guys. This is show number 15. Thank you so much for listening. And if you actually enjoyed the show, hopefully you did because we put so much effort in this. And I say we, it's actually me and myself. So if you actually enjoyed the show, why not head to startupfounders.com.au? You will find the links there to iTunes. And if you leave a review, then hopefully iTunes is going to give us more 
I mean, awareness, more ranking, and more people will listen to this show. So thank you once again, and I will see you tomorrow with another podcast here at Startup Founders.